This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. We are excited to announce that there is a way for people who do not have smartphones or who prefer to use their computers to listen to the Return to Order Moment. All you need to do is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org. When you get there, you will see the Return to Order logo at the top of the page. Immediately under that is a dark yellow bar with eight buttons. The second from the right is Podcast. Simply click on that word and you will go directly to our podcast page. The newest episode will be the first on the list. Click the little arrowhead under the title, sit back and listen. We publish a new podcast every week at midnight when Tuesday becomes Wednesday. So, if you go to the website every week, it is easy to hear our latest episode. So now we thank you for listening to our current episode. Why does Pope Francis deny our precious Catholic heritage? Pope Francis called his recent trip to Canada a penitential pilgrimage. In doing so, he called into question the sacrifices of innumerable priests, brothers, nuns, and lay people who gave their efforts, and in some cases their lives, to bring Christianity to all the corners of the world. In doing so, he sacrifices our Catholic heritage to the spirit of the age. He has done this before, most notably in his attempts to restrict the use of the traditional Latin Mass and his Amazonian Synod in 2017. Who can forget his desecration of St. Peter's Basilica with the infamous Pachamama Idol? Mr. John Horvath takes a long and detailed look at this newest outrage in his essay, How Pope Francis's Canadian Trip Undermines a Traditional Catholic Concept of Missions. For decades, progressive Catholics have tried to change the notion of Catholic missions, especially among the more primitive peoples. Thus, Pope Francis's trip to Canada highlights the dominance of this current that frames American Indian missionary work as an instrument of European oppression and the suppression of tribal cultures. Armed with notions of Rousseau's noble savage and liberation theology errors, this progressive wing of the church even claims that tribal people do not need evangelization and might teach the West about living in harmony with nature. Such a rewriting of history distorts the traditional Catholic concept of the missions. It denigrates the heroic work of saints and missionaries who endured great hardships in their thirst for souls. It likewise ignores many atrocious customs, conditions, and superstitions that crippled pagan cultures and wrought untold sufferings upon those peoples. Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira denounces this maneuver to destroy the notion of the missions in his prophetic book, Indian Tribalism, the Communist Missionary Ideal for Brazil in the 21st Century. Today, the partisans of this heterodox theory can be found among the Pacamama-venerating partisans of Amazonian spirituality and all Mother Earth, also known as Gaia, worshippers among Indians throughout the Americas. 
The obligation to evangelize came from the Great Commission, when Christ himself said, Going therefore, teach ye all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. See St. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Christ did not order the apostles to impose their Jewish culture upon the peoples. Rather, he called upon the apostles to teach the universal truths of the gospel so that those who heard the good news and believed might have access to eternal life. Because of original sin, fallen humanity can fall into the worst depravity. Those who evangelized the world found it sunk in sin, vice, and superstitions. There were no peoples on the earth that did not suffer from barbaric practices, constant warfare, famine, witchcraft, slavery, and impurity. Mission comes from the Latin word missio, which comes from mito, which means I send. Thus, the missionary was sent by Christ through the church to free those poor souls from slavery to the devil. It was not a Jewish, Roman, or later European project that transformed the pagan landscape. The primitive barbarians occupying Europe during antiquity were as cruel and savage as the tribes later found in the Americas. Both needed evangelization. Thus, this missionary activity was often disruptive, as can be seen by the early Christian saints who overturned the idols, chopped down the sacred oak groves, or forbade human sacrifice, infanticide, or cannibalism. However, God blessed these efforts, and many people, recognizing the misery of their situation, abandoned their erroneous ways and begged the missionaries to enlighten them. Whole peoples converted to the faith as a result. Wherever the church went, she preserved what was good in the culture and removed that which was evil, always building an authentic Christian culture. Thus, the Catholic mission model developed over 30 centuries, was always very defined. Missionaries aimed for the salvation of souls so that they might receive the happiness of heaven and thereby give glory to God for all eternity. Professor Correa de Oliveira states, The Church teaches that the normal way for a man to be saved consists in being baptized, believing, and professing the doctrine and law of Jesus Christ, unquote. It also consists in observing God's law. This description is familiar to all who have read the lives of saints and missionaries and how they suffered hardship and martyrdom to bring souls to the faith. While the final goal of the missionary work is eternal salvation for souls immersed in the darkness of sin, 
the missions also had the added benefits of improving the eternal life of the new Christians as they learned to love God and neighbor. Professor Correa de Oliveira dares to state the Church's traditional position that, quote, to Christianize and to civilize are thus correlated terms. It is impossible to Christianize seriously without civilizing. Likewise and reciprocally, it is impossible to de-Christianize without disordering, brutalizing, and forcing a return to barbarity. With the gospel and the practice of the Ten Commandments, Christian order reigns, and society progresses materially, intellectually, and culturally. The superstitions and barbaric customs that enslaved pagan peoples no longer tormented or left them in unhappy stagnation. The Indian evangelization differed from the barbarian conversions after the fall of the Roman Empire. These latter peoples converted to the faith and formed Catholic nations, where the church could influence the whole culture without outside corrosive elements. The later Indian evangelizations, however, were hampered by contact with decadent and modern neo-pagan explorers, who had a corrosive influence on the converted populations. Protestant powers and bad Catholics often destroyed the beneficial work of the Catholic missions. Enlightenment ideas further darkened minds to the truth. These influences made the Indians subject to many injustices that must be denounced. The work of the missionaries was harder by having to fight these corrupt Western elements in addition to the superstitions of pagan religions. Nevertheless, the influence of the church still benefited the Indians by opening them to the means of eternal salvation. Whole tribes were converted and baptized. These peoples often advanced materially and enjoyed the benefits of progress. Wherever the church went, she alleviated the suffering, educated the youth, and preserved native languages. Today, the Church joyfully invokes the names of Native American saints from these populations, such as St. Kateri Tekawitha, St. Juan Diego, and St. Martin de Porres. Our Lady of Guadalupe came to Mexico and brought about the conversion of millions. Professor Correa de Oliveira's book outlines how Updated, missionaries have rejected the mission tradition and flipped the narrative to see the Indian peoples as the, quote, true evangelizers of the world, unquote. They have rejected Christ's mandate to go and teach all nations and provide them with baptism as a means of salvation. Indeed, Father Corrado Dalmolego an Italian consolata priest directing the Cat Rimani mission in Brazil, bragged that his mission had not baptized anyone in over 53 years. Some partisans of this new so-called church with an Amazonian face seek to reinstate the practices of idolatry, as seen in the Pachamama statue nudity and immorality that enslaved their ancestors. 
Indians are often expected to adopt communitarian lifestyles without private property, which shackles them in abject poverty. The neo-missionary narrative fits well with liberation theology ideas that turn everything into a class-struggle framework of oppressors and oppressed. It idolizes a primitive, Marxist, utopian ideal that never existed in Indian culture, but is presented as a utopian model for the West. The trip of Pope Francis to Canada serves as an occasion to further this subversive narrative much more by images than words. It is not to say that injustices did not happen. However, the focus of the criticism is couched in terms that favor revolution and resentment. The traditional concept of the mission's salvific role has been abandoned in favor of a sociological and leftist perspective that greatly harms both Native Americans and North Americans of all ethnic backgrounds. Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira claims that the central focus must be, quote, the power and kindness of the Savior, unquote, our Lord Jesus Christ not the Antichrist represented by the modern neo-pagan tribal world. Quote, Our Lord Jesus Christ is infinitely more powerful than the Antichrist. Unquote. May all nations believe in him and be baptized, so that his prayer in the Our Father will be fulfilled. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. What is this Catholic culture that Pope Francis is so willing to deny? In 2012, Mr. Ben Bruchard wrote a beautiful essay about Christopher Columbus. In it, he detailed the many ways the great explorer gave evidence of his faith. The Return to Order Moment used this essay in September 2019. It is our pleasure once again to bring you The Catholic Spirit of Christopher Columbus. As the sun set, the Salve Regina hymn rang out across the Atlantic. Ninety men stood on the decks of three boats, led in prayer by Christopher Columbus, the foreign captain that they had come to trust. They had kept the same ritual of evening prayers since they left Spain months ago, but tonight was different. Tomorrow would be the feast of Our Lady of the Pillar, Spain's great patroness. Columbus had promised his men that had they not spotted land by her feast day, he would order the ships to turn back, a promise that he intended to keep. He knew Our Lady would not abandon the enterprise he had worked so hard to bring about. The signs that they were near land were increasing by the day. As Columbus climbed the steps to his cabin, his gaze fell instinctively to the western horizon. Off in the distance, he caught sight of a light like a candle rising and falling on the waves. Quickly, he called another man who confirmed the sighting. The crews on all three ships were alerted. Each man was on deck, peering out for signs of land nearby. At 2 a.m., the cry came out, Tierra! Land! 
The excitement of the crew was such that they hardly noticed the many hours it took to navigate the treacherous reef that surrounded their new destination. As Columbus knelt on the beach to give thanks, the following prayer rose from his lips. O Lord, eternal and omnipotent God, Thou hast by Thy holy word created the heavens, the earth, and the sea. Blessed and glorified be Thy name. Praised be Thy majesty, who has deigned that, by means of Thy unworthy servant, Thy sacred name should be acknowledged and made known in this new quarter of the world. The above prayer, recited in Latin and the first spoken in the Americas, was followed by the chanting of the Credo and the Te Deum, and many other prayers in thanksgiving. As banners were unfurled, the admirable solemnly proclaimed, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He proceeded to claim the new land for his sovereigns, but not before claiming it for his divine master, giving it the name San Salvador, Holy Savior. The details in the above account of the first landfall of Europeans in the Americas are rather unknown in modern times. Historians have typically shied away from the Catholic aspects of Columbus's journeys, either making passing mention or ignoring them entirely. Yet a reading of the writings of Columbus himself, along with the testimonies of his contemporaries, shows that the Catholic spirit permeated all aspects of life and was central to the mission of exploration. While a detailed retelling of the events of 1492 and afterward is far beyond the scope of this article, we will examine the Catholic inspirations for the discovery, which are essential to understanding Columbus himself. Contrary to the opinion of many modern historians, and far from being a minor aberration, Columbus's militant Catholic faith was the source of his greatness and influenced his every action. All evidence shows that Columbus was a man of deep devotion who took his faith extremely seriously. One of his contemporaries, Bartolomé de las Casas, described him as a man of righteousness and deep piety. Quote, He observed the fasts of the church most faithfully, confessed and made communion often, read the divine office like a churchman, hated blasphemy and profane swearing, and was most devoted to Our Lady and to the seraphic father, St. Francis. Unquote. These two devotions had many manifestations. The first name of Columbus's flagship on the first voyage was Santa Maria de la Immaculada Concepción, Holy Mary of the Immaculate Conception. During the return of the first voyage, when the ships were in danger of sinking, Columbus and his men vowed a pilgrimage to the first Marian church they came to, which they fulfilled in the Azores two weeks later. Upon his return to Spain, Columbus made a pilgrimage to the monastery of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Extremadura as a solemn act of thanksgiving. As a third-order Franciscan, Columbus was often seen wearing the Franciscan habit, particularly when in the presence of clergy or nobility. 
His close personal association with the Franciscans was instrumental in securing contacts in the royal court and provided much-needed encouragement when it seemed the enterprise would never get the support it required. His son Diego remained in the care of the Franciscans at the monastery of La Rabida near Palos during the first voyage, where the friars took charge of his education. Upon his return to Spain, Columbus spent the summer of 1493 at La Rabida, preparing spiritually for the second voyage later that year. After Columbus's death, his second son Fernando would write of his father's piety. In matters of religion, he was so strict that for fasting and saying all the canonical offices, he might have been taken for a member of a religious order. And when he had to write anything, he would not try the pen without first writing these words, Jesus cum Maria sit nobis in via. The inscription is found in the majority of Columbus's letters still extant. The literal meaning, May Jesus with Mary be with us on the way, is a fitting prayer for an explorer, and could rightly be considered his motto. Scholars have been quick to point to the influence of Marco Polo's Book of the Marvels of the World upon Columbus and his contemporaries, and rightly so. Yet the chapter which most influenced Columbus himself was the introduction. In it, we read of Polo's father and uncle, Niccolo and Maffeo Polo, traveling to the Orient while Marco was still an infant. Their extensive travels eventually put them into contact with Kublai Khan, referred to in the book as the Great Khan. The Great Khan questioned them about life in Western Europe and the Catholic faith, in which he took an interest. Upon their departure, he entrusted them with a letter to the Pope requesting 100 missionaries to instruct his kingdom in the Catholic faith, along with oil from the lamp at the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. On the return of the Polos to the West in 1268, they discovered Pope Clement IV had died, and the long interregnum which followed prevented the Khan's requests from being fulfilled. In his petitions to Ferdinand and Isabella over a period of seven years, it was Columbus's desire to fulfill the great Khan's request, which finally persuaded the sovereigns to approve the journey. Aboard his flagship was a letter to the great Khan from the king and queen, and Columbus went to great lengths in order to deliver it. In the prologue to the report on the first voyage, Columbus directly addresses this evangelistic mission. I have given a report to your highnesses about the lands of India and about a prince who is called Grand Khan, and how he had sent to Rome to ask for men learned in our holy faith in order that they might instruct him in it. Yet the Holy Father never granted his request, and thus so many people were lost, falling into idolatry and accepting false and harmful religions. And your highnesses, as Catholic Christians and princes, lovers and promoters of the holy Christian faith, thought of sending me, Cristobal Colon, to see how their conversion to our holy faith might be undertaken. Unquote. 
Yet the mission to complete the Khan's request for missionaries was but one aspect of Columbus's desire to spread the gospel. As Bartolomé de las Casas wrote, He was extremely zealous for the honor and glory of God. He deeply yearned for the evangelization of these peoples and for the planting and flourishing everywhere of people's faith in Jesus Christ. Unquote. Upon his first encounter with the natives on San Salvador, Columbus concludes, I recognize that they were people who would be better freed from error and converted to our holy faith by love rather than by force. Unquote. On six separate occasions, Columbus wrote to the Holy Father requesting missionaries be sent to the recently discovered islands, a request which was fulfilled. On January 6, 1494, the Feast of the Epiphany, the first Mass in the Americas was offered by a Benedictine who had accompanied the second voyage. Five centuries after the fact, American Jesuit father John Hardin would remark, It is one thing to say that Columbus discovered America. It is something else to realize that he opened the door to the most phenomenal spread of Christianity since the time of St. Paul. Unquote. A question arises from the modern reader. What about the quest for gold? As Columbus makes clear in his log, the finding of gold, spices, and other valuables is central to his mission, but not for the reason that most are taught. On December 26, 1492, Columbus had established a makeshift settlement named La Navidad on the north end of the island of Hispaniola from the wreckage of the Santa Maria run aground on a reef. Seeing the hand of divine providence, he proceeded to write of his desired result. I hope to God that when I come back here from Castile, I will find a barrel of gold for which these people have traded, and that they will have found the gold mine and the spices, and in such quantities that within three years the sovereigns will prepare for and undertake the reconquest of the Holy Land. I have already petitioned your highnesses to see that all the profits of my enterprise should be spent on the conquest of Jerusalem. And your highnesses smiled and said that, even without the expedition, they had the inclination to do it. Unquote. Now that Spain was finally free from Muslim domination, January 2nd, 1492, the great desire to take the fight to the enemy and complete the liberation of the Holy Land could finally be completed. By sailing west, Columbus was aiming to outflank Islam, gaining access to the riches of the east so as to finance the retaking of Jerusalem. Since 1453, while Columbus was still a child, calls had come from all corners of Europe to renew the crusade. Columbus saw himself as the instrument to fulfill the long-for end. In a letter to Pope Alexander VI, Columbus reiterates the seriousness of his intentions. Quote, 
The enterprise must be undertaken in order to spend any profits therein for the redemption of the sepulchre and the temple mount unto holy church. Unquote. Historian George Grant succinctly concludes, Clearly, the motivations of Columbus were shaped by the eons-long conflict between Christendom and Islam. The evidence is inescapable. He sailed not to discover a new world, but to find a way to recover the old one. Unquote. The events of 1492 and afterward could have transpired far differently. The richest nation in the world at the time was China, followed by the Islamic caliphates which stretched from Morocco to the edges of the Far East. Why didn't the Chinese expand their empire to the east across the Pacific? Why was it not a Muslim who established lasting contact between the continents? For that matter, why was it not an Indian who discovered Europe? Modern historians are at a loss to answer these questions and conclude that it was simply by chance that events unfolded as they did. This hardly explains the fact that Spain was the poorest nation in Western Europe at the time, bankrupt from its completion of the Reconquista. Yet not only did Spain successfully go about colonizing and evangelizing the Americas, it also kept the Muslims out of the Americas. Had Islam spread to the Americas in place of Christianity, what we now know today as the United States could very well have been the United Emirates. Columbus believed that he was specially chosen by God to bring the gospel to a people who were living in darkness and the shadow of death. He believed that his given name, Christopher, signified the mission he was destined to carry out, as his son Fernando would later explain. Just as St. Christopher bore Christ over the waters, so too was he to bear the light of the gospel over the vast oceans. Unquote. In conclusion, spreading the Catholic faith and acquiring riches so as to finance the retaking of Jerusalem from the Muslims were at the heart of Columbus's mission. Any hopes of personal rewards or honors were secondary. In writing the royal treasurer of Spain at the completion of the first journey, he gives the reason all people, present and future, should celebrate what would come to be known as Columbus Day. And now ought the king, queen, princes, and all their dominions, as well as the whole of Christians, to give thanks to our Savior Jesus Christ, who has granted us such a victory and great success. Let processions be ordered. Let solemn festivals be celebrated. Let the temples be filled with boughs and flowers. Let Christ rejoice upon earth as he does in heaven to witness the coming salvation of so many people heretofore given over to perdition. Let us rejoice for the exaltation of our faith as well as for the augmentation of our temporal prosperity in which not only Spain but all Christendom shall participate. This concludes, Why Does Pope Francis Deny Our Precious Catholic Heritage? Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. 
If you have enjoyed this podcast, please remember that we publish new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. There are two ways to make sure that you don't miss future episodes. The first way is to subscribe to your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. We ask subscribers to give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would like to recommend the book which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2022 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.